I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives. Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and welcome to this episode of The Stages Podcast. It's great to have your company. Recording this podcast has allowed me access to a terrific range of artists who eloquently share their experiences and offer brilliant insight into the creative mind. I could not be more excited about our guest today. He is a former artistic director of the Australian Opera, and his work has had an enormous influence on the development of opera in this country. I'm speaking, of course, of Moffat Oxenbold. Moffat joined the Elizabethan Theatre Trust Company in 1962 after graduating from NIDA's inaugural production course. Apart from a year in London with Sadler's Wells, he remained with the National Company for the rest of his career, working his way from stage manager to artistic director. He has directed many operas, both here and abroad. They include celebrated productions of Simon Bocanegra, Tritico, Simiramide and Madama Butterfly. Retiring from the opera as artistic director at the end of 1999, Moffat continued to sit on many boards, including the Board of Studies at NIDA, his alma mater, and continued to be involved in directing operas. He is a blessed artist and administrator who has navigated every stage of his career with tremendous joy, education and passion. And through this investment, Moffat enabled legions of performers to embrace their craft and audiences to embrace the most mysterious and magnetic of all art forms, the opera. I sat in awe at the accomplishments of Moffat. He reflects on his time working in the world of opera so passionately. You're in for a real treat. Here's Stage's conversation with Moffat Oxenbold. Yes, uh, fate plays a big part in our stories, doesn't it? Right place, right time. Oh, I think absolutely. I mean, talent is one thing and being prepared to do hard work is another and all that sort of thing. But it's just luck. It's just... The, being in the right place at the right time. Um, when I went to Britain uh, after the Sutherland Williamson season in '65, I uh, had an interview at, at Covent Garden, and they said, "Oh yes, but in some months we'd like to have you perhaps come and be a stage manager or something like that." And I just wanted to work, and I had an I had an, a good introduction to what was then Sadler's Wells, became English National Opera. And I, again, that was very polite. And I said, yes, we'd be very interested, but there's nothing at the moment. Three or four days later, they said, somebody has, has resigned uh, and is going in two weeks. So could you fly to 
Hull, I think. I think I started in Hull. Um, and to join this company. So, I mean, it was just being there at the moment. And I found in my own career, sometimes somebody would come in to the, just a general sort of appointment to say, here I am, this is me, this is what I do. And then a week or two weeks later, something opens up and that person is ready and available. So, yes. They were delivered to you by the opera gods. The, the opera gods, the good old... Dr. Theatre. Dr. Theatre. Dr. Theatre is my favourite person. I've relied on Dr. Theatre on a number of occasions. The, the Baz Luhrmann um, Lake Lost, which was the National Opera Workshop we did in the bicentennial year, uh, was the first Baz Luhrmann Association, and it was done in a, a film studio with a permanent cyclorama. It was called Lake Lost, and it was a sort of environmental piece. And... Uh, I was in the phase of, want, of loving the dynamic between very experienced people and very young people. So we had five wrinklies, as they called themselves, and, and the Young Artist Programme people. And they were the cast, and uh, Baz and the composer Felix Ma, and Wendy Harmer actually was the librettist, uh, uh, put this piece together. And it was done in this strange studio. Uh, we had a lake, it was filled with water. We had an island with trees on it, and uh, uh, it was very ambitious, and it, w it was a workshop. It wasn't a performance. I, d I don't know that we even charged for people to go and see it, but uh, at the dress rehearsal, it was one of those things you thought, i just got to close this down. It's not going to work. It's, not, it's just not working. And the composer was upset. He'd run off into the island and was sitting in a little hut and and the cast waiting out on the, the stage manager rang me and said, would you come up here? But don't come through the main entrance because the cast are waiting to tell you that they can't go ahead with it, you know, this sort of thing. It was a real mess. And anyhow, uh, Stuart Challenger had been uh, involved in it with me in choosing it and setting the whole thing up. And um, we, were at the, we decided we would, get, would go ahead. And Dr. Theatre came. It was. It all just came together. It was one of those extraordinary things because nobody knew what to expect. Uh, the singers were all wearing foot condoms. The Ansel Rubber Company came to this because they were having to work in water all the time. Yeah. So they had these things. And uh, the Doctor Theatre arrived. It all worked. And that led to Bohem. And that led to all sorts of things. To, to the listener who may not be familiar with Dr. Theatre, what's, what's your definition of Dr. Theatre? <coughs> or Dr. Footlights, he's sometimes known. Dr. Theatre is uh, a theatre god. Uh, is, is, it's just good luck and good fortune. A uh, good fortune. When Sometimes I think when a, a lot of energies have been devoted to something and they haven't coalesced somehow or don't look as if they're going to come together, then Dr. Theatre comes and just smooths it all over and makes it happen but it, it's uh, I think that's one of the great excitements actually to you you, ha you can plan something on paper and have four or five weeks of of this will happen here and this person and it can go terribly wrong I mean an illness I imagine with something like COVID it must be so difficult to plan anything because uh, you know you have people coming into or guest artists or whatever and you don't know what's going to happen and uh the, the, the tickets are sold for the first night, so something has got to happen. Um, so, yes, Dr. Theatre is a good person to be on the right side of. 
there's something about that combination of, of lights and costume and music and focus which which comes to the fore I think which which elevates the performer uh, uh, the creatives in order in order to, to to make that um, that performance for the night happen occur we, we see that so often with with uh, people who may not be feeling a hundred percent oh yes indeed yeah. uh, yes I, I think so because it's uh, the bringing together of a large number of individuals with individual talents and methods of uh, employing their talents or engaging their talents uh, coming together and so some people for instance uh, want to love rehearse I've known artists who would be happy to sit in a rehearsal room for six or eight weeks but they don't like you know the performances it's once once that exploring stage is over they are not less interested in it but they wish it was still going in fact it is still going on because it things develop in a run of performances but yeah no i i, th I think that in opera i think in a repertory company and i'm talking about the ensemble as it used to be i mean you but because opera is generally performed in repertory it's different now a lot of a lot of theatre companies used to perform, particularly in Britain, um, in rep, and maybe one or two still do. But, it, you know, you, you have a rehearsal of Butterfly in the morning and you've got to change to Figaro in the evening and that sort of thing like that. So the whole, that great trundling performance activity keeps on rolling. Uh, and you need to... I was very fortunate, I think, at NIDA, um, the guy in charge of our course, at the, direct, the production course at NIDA, was a man called Tom Brown, who was an Australian dancer. He was actually uh, worked with Tyron Guthrie in Stratford, Ontario. And he was a great planner at putting, pre-scheduling everything like that. And then uh, um, in the Sutherland-Williamson season in 1965, Norman Ayrton, who directed five of the seven operas uh, was also somebody who and uh, who was a believer in schedules. So I think that was my natural inclination. Anyhow, Peter Smith, the stage manager of the opera that I'd worked with at the beginning, uh, was one of the great sort of colleagues, but also a great teacher. And he was, you know, realised you could only get through these touring schedules uh, if the planning was absolutely worked out and. Uh, so I was blessed to have those people in my life. And, and I, around this very table, uh, have spent so much time working out, you know, how the whole thing comes together because it, it's bringing together forces of drama, forces of music, technical things, um, rules and regulations, awards and so on and so forth like that. So it's, it's, a, it's a big operation. Music uh, has the, the great power to um, influence, drive, manipulate our senses. Um, it can excite, it can, um, it can take us to the depths of sadness, and uh, none more so uh, example than in opera. I think that's right, because opera does unite two of the greatest, most powerful forces, music and drama. Uh, and I think while music is at the absolute core, uh, the, the having those two and other 
forces as well, dance and, and design and art and so on and so forth. It's an interesting art form because in its preparation, it has two heads. It has a, somebody, the conductor is in charge of the music, in charge. The conductor leads the music and the director leads the drama. So that, that when those two forces are on the one same, same page and the same way, you've got a double whammy force of energy in the rehearsal room and carry that onto the stage, although the director bows out at the dress, after the dress rehearsal. Uh, and that's a good and proper process. But of course, if there is division between, which sometimes happens, inevitably sometimes happens. Creative differences. Then the poor singers are left with saying, well, who, who's the most important and which one do we take notice of? You know, it's, a, it's an awful situation and can sometimes lead to really disappointing performances. But um... the, uh, the ear is, is um, a well-sensitised taste palette. Can we, uh, we train our ears to recognise uh, and appreciate the different genres of music, do you think? I mean, not everybody takes immediately to opera or necessarily to, to R&B or to, to country. Uh, uh, yes, I think so. I, I, I think you are fed music. You know, I was fortunate that my parents had music in the home and they introduced me to opera sort of on the way, Gilbert and Sullivan on the way to opera. And then um, an Italian opera company came to Sydney and I went to that and uh, Microgroove Records suddenly, you know, that I'm a child of Microgroove age, uh, that one could discover things and that would lead you to something else. You know, you'd read about something or you'd hear something by a particular composer and that would you'd want to know more about that composer or whatever. I, I, I think that's a good introduction, but you, you find it. You know, people uh, say they don't want to know about opera or, or learn about opera or, or have no... And, and in some cases, that's true. They, it doesn't appeal to them. That doesn't get to them. But more, I, most, I think, do. You know, they, they will come, especially when it is allied with, with drama and with some visual effect. I mean, the, these extraordinary things that can be done now with... Uh, the, the projection screens and so not projection screens but electronic things in theatres uh, for those of us who come from the age of scenery and sort of solid sets and things like that they're a little bit alarming but uh, it's it's a different age people are used to that sort of um, thing and that's if that is in accord with the music or is heightened by the music or heightens the music uh, then I think it it's, it, re it retains all its power and all its fascination. Moffat, you spent about 37 years with Australian opera in various uh, guises? The, yes, I started off in 1963 as a stage manager and uh, I left at the end of 2000. I think I stopped being, actually, I did stop being artistic director at the end of 99 but it had been planned that I would go to 2000 and I did in fact stay for that year and godfathered the things that I'd put in place. It was just difficult for the staff because um, Simone Young was succeeding me as uh, the music director, uh, the artistic leader of the company and we had known one another throughout all of her career, early career particularly. And it was, but it was just a different way of doing things from a different 
perspective. And for the staff, it was sort of be listening to Moffat in the morning and Simone in the afternoon. It just so it was better that I actually step back uh, and um, let them get it because you have to do a lot of work in advance. So there was a lot of planning work for the, for the seasons that were under Simone's direction. Um, so yes, I, I was with the, the company essentially for all of that time, except for about eighteen months in nineteen sixty six, sixty seven, when I went. In those days, you needed to go away. You had to be have been to somewhere else in the world, preferably Britain. Uh, so after the Sutherland Williamson season, which was in sixty five, I went to London and I was a deputy stage manager at Sadler's Wells for. A season and a half or two half seasons I think I came in the middle of a season and left before the end of the next one. Opera in Australia was relatively young at that point. Yes it was. Uh, it was there was this thing happening on Benelong Point that an opera house was being built and so all of us saw that as sort of the gods going into Valhalla, not that we were necessarily the gods, but that it was, we were going towards something, we were working towards something. Uh, so the company was quite small, uh, numerically, uh, because we then used the state symphony orchestras, the ABC symphony orchestras in each state. Uh, we toured a lot and we were, uh, but you'd have to re-rehearse everything you started it in Brisbane, you then re-rehearsed it for Adelaide with the new orchestra, then you did it in Melbourne with another orchestra. So it was quite extended. We even did one season. Stefan Haag, who was the guiding force of all of this, uh, had been very important, was, was the father of the company, I suppose. Uh, but he'd worked with the National Theatre in Melbourne with Gertrude Johnson. He decided, I think it would have been in 1964, to do a, a European season, namely opera, and the ballet companies worked together. Uh, so we were touring with the ballet company. We started at the Adelaide Festival. It was promoted in a rather strange way, and I think a lot of people thought the singers were going to dance and the dancers were going to sing. And we had some, some maybe strange repertoire choices that Karl Orff double bill wasn't exactly what I think <laughs> Australia was screaming out for at that time. Um, but... but uh, Yes, it, it uh, was an extraordinary building time. Uh, and then uh, we would... The aim was to try and give people permanent employment. Uh, and that was quite hard to do. The, the, the main season would take five or six months. Uh, we did a, a production of Fledermas in 63, the first year I was with the company. And that then went as a commercial musical uh, to the Princess Theatre in Melbourne uh, with the Garnet Carroll organisation. Uh, and the, that took a certain section of the company who could perform operetta. And the rest of us went on a country tour. We went to the Perth Festival with Bohem and Figaro. We then did a 12-week country tour of Bohem and Figaro. Uh, from Port Lincoln, the Tuna Rama Festival to Banana Rama in far north Queensland, I think it was a, a it was a great learning time. It was extraordinary, but it it uh, it was to keep people together, and of course that built the ensemble and this feeling. Ensemble. One of the things you'd, words you'd use to describe ensemble is trust in one another, uh, and 
then we, I think in 64, we were on another country tour. I, I can't remember whether it was, anyhow, I, there was a butterfly tour the following year. Maybe that was in 65. So it was probably on that uh, Figaro Bohem tour. I think we were in Goulburn and an announcement came out that uh, uh, Joan Sutherland and Richard Bonning were coming back to Australia for J.C. Williamson's to recreate the, one of the Melba seasons and so forth, and there would be a new opera company. So we thought, well, that's us gone. Uh, and because Australia can't possibly sustain two companies. Uh, and Dr. Theatre came to the rescue again, I suppose, or some good spirit came. And uh, there was, after some months, there was a coming together of the Elizabethan Trust Opera Company, as it was called in those days, and J.C. Williamson's Theatre, so that they be, became co-presenters of the Sutherland Williamson Company. Uh, and that was, uh, I mean, people came to hear Joan uh, and discovered that Laura Silms had been living in Melbourne for some years and that she was a wonderful, wonderful singer and, and there, were, uh, there were people in their midst who could give them a great excitement in the theatre. There was Luciano Pavarotti, who was uh, at the beginning of his career. He hadn't at that stage, I think, maybe he'd made a record, but I don't, there were no discs available, so it was just a name. And uh, so that brought a, came at the right time to, to give a sort of excitement and bring a lot more people into the theatre. Uh, and then after that, uh, the company getting its own orchestra, which allowed it to perform more often because we didn't have to spend so much time re-rehearsing and re-rehearsing. Uh, Harry Miller and the subscription selling scheme, you know, to people uh, would buy five operas for a lower price or something like that. And so you'd have a box office for pieces that were not as well known as others. We had a wonderful series of <coughs> Monday night youth performances, I think. It was, was it still before decimal currency. I'm very old. <laughs> uh, but anyhow, it was very, it was like a pound or something like that to go. And, and we would do these performances on Monday nights, which is traditionally the night that people don't go to the theatre. So you'd have these people under 26 years old getting incredibly excited by hearing Donald Smith and Mario Collier and Tosca and so forth like that. Um, uh, you, you, before the Opera House, obviously, this is a while yeah. before, you're performing in a whole variety of venues. Um, so it's requiring the company to, to recalibrate for the space. And I, I, I figure it's, it's building a real muscle within the company as well. Yes, well, at least in the capital cities, the people knew the circuit of the J.C. Williamson's theatres. We sometimes performed in Her Majesty's in Melbourne, sometimes at the Princess, which is, you know, the home of the National Opera. So they were at least stages that some were bigger, some were smaller, but they, everything was designed to work on those stages. Where one really had to improvise was on the country tours because you would arrive with your bus or the monster, we called it, with all this scenery in the back. And you'd, sometimes it would be a great big Birch Carol and Coil Theatre in North Queensland that, you know, was bigger than the, the, the theatres, the stage area was bigger than the theatres in Sydney and Melbourne. Or you were in a tiny little place with a carpeted floor, so you decide what scenery to take off the bus and, and just tell the singers, by the way, you don't have this tonight or that is somewhere else or something like that. So that, that oh yeah, look, it was, um, it would be frowned upon 
today, I suppose, because things are much better organised. Uh, I feel very blessed that I had that opportunity because um, you you had to be on your toes all the time and uh, and you had to work with other people. And uh, You had to be inventive, you had to be had spontaneous. To be, yes, yes, you did. You did. And so... Yes, I mean, extra sometimes we'd arrive quite late. Uh, I remember when I said a stage with, with carpet on it, that particular stage, I think, was in Cobar. And it, it also was quite raped. So we were doing Bohème there, and th there's a lot of things with glasses and bottles and props and things in the first act, and these things would roll off. <laughs> Even on the carpet, they would roll into the... Well, there was no pit, but... Um, yes, they were they were great days. And, I, and they... Uh, but there was a seriousness about the music uh, and a desire to... It forced the performers, because often there were, there were some very experienced singers would go on those country tours, and it was another opportunity for people who were at the beginning of their careers to do 40 performances of Figaro or something in six months. Um, so that uh, it, it forced you to be in real direct contact with the audience and elicit a response through your singing, through your performance, for your view of a character and so forth. So I think they may not have been very spectacular to look at, but they were, they were performances that had their own spirit and their own integrity. And formative years in, in building the company. Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And uh, also, you know, there were, were activities. When I left NIDA, I, uh, the opera company, the Elizabethan Trust Opera Company, was in recess. It was going to start up again in some months' time. And uh, because I'd been uh, the previous year part of their, seconded to the company, so they knew me and I knew them, so they said, yes, we'd like you to join the stage management for the company. But it doesn't exist at the moment, so would you like to go to, to Hobart? to stage manage the Tales of Hoffman. There's an organisation down there which was headed by John Young, who was a, a singer and who later became an administrator of the opera company. Uh, he's directing Tales of Hoffman with Alan Light and Victor Franklin and Althea Bridges and you know established singers, Neil Warren Smith. Um, uh, and, uh, oh, and would you like to direct a play? because the, the repertory theatre down there would like somebody to direct a play. Would you direct Pig, Pygmalion? Uh, this was me straight out of NIDA. Uh, and I uh, stage managed Hoffman. I directed Pygmalion. Then I stayed on to do a musical called The Ballad of Angel's Alley, which John Young had done in Melbourne. Uh, and then I think we did Charlie's Aunt or something like that because there was an old comedian called Bill, Bill Hodge who was in... Uh, Ballad of Angels Alley, and he stayed on to do Charlie's Aunt. So I painted scenery. I went around hanging up posters in shops and going to auction houses to buy chairs and so on and so forth like that. But it, I, I, it was an extraordinary spirit uh, in Napfas, in Hobart, you know, a community spirit that um, everybody was working towards the performance and to getting this. It was important to them. Uh, and we had the Tasmanian Symphony and the conductors of, of the Tasmanian Symphony. It's um, they were they were wonderful years. I mean, they, and they, as you say, they are, they were formative, but they were also, for me, they were educational.
And I, I remember leaving NIDA and Tom Brown, who directed our course, said, well, we've given you two years of theory and so on and so forth, and you know all about Japanese theatre and traditions of kabuki and all this stuff like that. And you're going to use about a thimble full of all that knowledge every day and buckets and buckets of common sense. And I went almost immediately to Hobart and the old chief mechanist of the Theatre Royal in Hobart was a man called Bill Wallace, who'd been with Gladys Moncrief and all those old touring Williamson companies. And I think they thought, who's this little arty-farty person from NIDA? Because I looked younger than I even was and I was, I was 20 or something like that. And uh, uh, I learned in those four or five months that I was down there so much from Bill Wallace, from his team, from all of those people, just what, it, what being in a theatre is about and, and the craft of theatre. It's learning on the job, isn't it? And, and willing to be a sponge to those, those experienced people around. Yes, and, and <laughs> making mistakes. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I think that I was probably learning until the day I left. Because you do. I mean, you, you, you can predict some things that are going to happen and you know about being prepared and you, can, you have an organised life and so forth. So you obviously have skills, but <clears throat> I think you, something new will always present itself and, uh, and you continue to learn. That's what life's about. Mm. Let's go back to the beginning. Uh, yes. You're a Sydney boy? Sydney, yes. I, I was born uh, in Sydney and I lived in Seaforth. Went to school here in Mossman and then I went to Shaw at North Sydney. And um, uh, I suppose that Shaw, Shaw was a sort of um, sport-oriented school. I wasn't a great sportsman. Um, but there were, there were, they did a Gilbert and Sullivan every year. So I was in the chorus of the Gilbert and Sullivan and they started to do some plays and there was a the teacher who was looking after the, the drama thing and he I didn't really know what I wanted to do uh, I thought I'd do an arts degree I didn't don't think I wanted to be an I, I, I didn't have the confidence to to be an actor and probably not the talent although you, you played Mozart at school didn't oh you? yes I did yes I played Mozart at school <laughs> that's down the road at Mossman Prep um, I Arthur Stafford at, at Shaw encouraged me to believe that I could have some sort of association with the theatre. I don't know what it was to be. I did the plays and passed the leaving certificate and matriculated or whatever I had to do to, to go to university. So I was going to do an arts degree. At, the, in, at that time, drama was becoming a, an art subject at the University of New South Wales. So a friend of my family was on the different uh, department said, oh, look, I'll arrange for Moffat to go and meet the head of the drama course, who happens to also be the head of NIDA, who was Professor Robert Quentin, who had been a general manager of the opera company, the Elizabethan Trust Opera Company. And so I went out to have a meeting with him to talk about arts drama, and he was telling me all about it. And he said, what do you really want to do? And I said, I'd never said it out loud, and I'd never thought of it before. I said, I want to produce opera. In those days, you were a producer, not a director. I want to produce opera. And he said, well, I think you should do a production course at NIDA. We're starting a production course uh, at the beginning of the new year. And so I applied and was accepted. And 
that, I mean, we, we, I don't know what, we, we learned to become stage managers, I think. We could build scenery and we could paint scenery, we could make props. We were very closely connected with Elizabethan Trust, so we knew all the workshop people and so forth. I was fortunate enough to, because I'd said I wanted to produce opera, to be seconded to the opera company during the long university vacation. I think it was nearly four months, so for a couple of those months was the rehearsal period for the Adelaide Festival. Charles McCarris was the musical director, so I suddenly found myself one night looking out over Darlinghurst in the break in the rehearsal, talking with Charles McCarris about Falstaff. But it was no surprise that you wanted to produce opera because during childhood you're, you're certainly informing yourself about the, the genre. I mean, at one point you described yourself as a real little voice freak. Yes. Uh, well, I suppose it's about personalities, but I think, who was the first? Callas, maybe. I mean, you used to buy little 45 records, and I think my mother or father bought me a Tosca with Callas singing Bissidati. I thought that was wonderful. Then there, were, there was an Italian company called Cetra, and they had a lot of those things, and there were some Callas recordings there. Um, then I'd, I discovered library books, and uh, there was a, a biography of Kirsten Flagstad and a book about Kathleen Ferrier. So reading the books made me want to hear those singers. Now, how so, old are you at this age? Oh, I don't know. 12, right. 13, um, yeah, yes, I suppose. Yes. Approaching adolescence. Yeah, yeah probably, yes. And uh, so I would order, there, there were record stores in Sydney that would import recordings. My parents were taking me to the opera. So I think I didn't hear anything in 1956. I think in 19, 1955 was my first opera, which was Carmen with the Italian Grand Opera Company that Williamson's brought out. And then in 57, I heard um, the, the Trust Opera Company for the first time with Barter Bride and Tosca and so forth. Uh, and I discovered the, these voices that appealed to me, and then I had a cousin who was a Tebaldi freak, so we would have callous Tebaldi wars, you know, the, this sort of thing like that. So a little voice freak, but I was discovering repertoire. I met in whatever year it was done the following year, I think Peter Grimes the first time. So I heard it only on the broadcast and in the theatre, the one performance I went to. But a couple of years later, uh, the Britain recorded Peter Grimes and I was able to order it from one of these record stores in Sydney that imported records and I remember when I got it was in a red horrible plastic album and you know th there was Peter Grimes and so I could uh, I learnt Peter Grimes I, I, I just that seemed to be just the thing that gave me the greatest joy as well as a cherished book a cherished book. The, the Victor Book of Opera. Oh, the Victor Book of Opera. Yes, well, my, my again, I was blessed with parents who encouraged me because they loved the theatre and loved music. Um, my brother was three years younger and he became a naval officer, so my father loved the sea and the theatre, so he was lucky with in both his sons followed in, uh, in a directions that he would have he absolutely approved of. Um, the Victor Book of Opera was uh, an American publication with stories of the operas, but wonderfully funny photographs of, of productions, again with singers who 
were some of them were still on record, you know, and uh, um, so I devoured that uh, in the late fifties, I think, about fifty nine. I discovered that there was a thing called Opera Magazine. I think I discovered it in Swain's, the booksellers. And uh, so I used to go in every month and buy Opera Magazine. And then my mother would give me a subscription to Opera Magazine that came from London each year. So I, I would go devour that from cover to cover. So I can tell you who sang. Well, I probably can't anymore, but I used to be able to tell you who had sung Eugenia um, uh, Ratti or somebody like that, who had sung something at Serpina in, at the Scar, Piccola Scala in 1959 in April or something like that. It was, I, I just devoured it. And uh, uh, I was, in fact, um, preparing for the future because uh, later on, uh, Lord Harwood was one of the original, when the opera company became autonomous. This is a very rambly conversation, I'm afraid for you, because I'm leaping all over the place. I love it, I love it. Um, uh, Lord Harwood was on the board of, of the opera company when it became the Australian Opera. And he would come out each year and talk with Sir Edward Downes, or he was subsequently Sir Edward Downes, the musical director, and we were preparing for the Opera House and so forth. And he had been the editor of Opera magazine in those early days. And sometimes he, he was a, a, an incredible aficionado and he had an extraordinary memory. But sometimes he would mention something that I would be able to join in the conversation because I'd read this thing in the early 1960s or whatever, because I'd, I'd sort of memorised it. I, later on, I didn't have time to all read opera from cover to cover. I'd only read what I was interested in. But, uh, yes. But the human voice can bring um, new meaning to, to various scores, can't it, depending on who the singers are? Absolutely, yes. I, well, I think all, masterpieces can be directed in and designed and produced in different ways and still be perfectly valid. And so in some, uh, most repertoire, different sorts of singers can bring different things, different strengths. I think that one of the things that a management is meant to do, the simplest thing to do, is to, to create an environment in which the artist can give of his or her best. So that means like the, that the rehearsal studio is clean that they are paid on time, that they have proper breaks, you know, all of those little day-to-day -day functional things, but that you provide a congenial atmosphere, which means sufficient time, talented people to play the piano, to, to be the stage manager, surrounding so that everybody's working in the one direction. And so I think if that's, if that's in place, uh, the period of the actual preparation of the piece that's being done can go in all sorts of directions. I mean, it, it, that frees the, frees the energy if you, if you have, and you have a, a good dynamic between the director and the conductor or the conductor and the director, uh, then, you're, then you're dealing with very powerful magic and, uh, and something can go in directions that one hadn't imagined uh, but 
we have the notes on the page and you have that musical integrity and you and and it's that's the greatness of the art form yeah otherwise it's just a duplication the repertoire of Gilbert and Sullivan featured prominently in your your childhood yes it did I think uh, well there was a Gilbert and Sullivan company JC Williamson's used to do Gilbert and Sullivan a lot and uh, they were mostly doily cart singers who came out. Um, a friend of my father's was Leo Packer who was a conductor for JC Williamson's and he used to conduct a Gilbert and Sullivan and uh, we would go to matinees and collect Leo on the way and drive him into the theatre and uh, he would tell me odd stories about how I, I was always mad about the contraltos in Gilbert and Sullivan and the first one was Muriel Brunskill, who was a British contralto. Uh, but I had actually, as a very young child, been taken to Iolanthe, uh, which had Evelyn Gardner as the fairy queen. So Evelyn Gardner became uh, somebody I, I just fascinated by the whole idea of Evelyn Gardner. And she, she was this, in, when the Gilbert and Sullivan Company came back to Sydney, Evelyn Gardner Eve was uh, back in the contralto roles. Uh, and when we started doing Gilbert and Sullivan with the Elizabethan Trust Opera in 1969, Stephen Hall, who was directing the pieces, asked Evelyn Gardner to come in to talk to us. And, and they showed us the Gilbert and Sullivan story film and so forth. And one of my sort of, I was, was I stage manager or assistant director or something. I had all sorts of titles, but basically I did the same job all the way through. But I used to look after Eve. She lived on the northern beaches. She was still formidable, uh, a wonderful lady. And I think she, in the production that we were doing of Iolanthe, the fairy queen was very slender and beautiful. And, and I don't think Eve could quite get that. <laughs> um, but uh, so, uh, but I, we did Gilbert and Sullivan at school. My parents had all the Gilbert and Sullivan long playing records, so I had memorised those. I can probably still, you wouldn't want to hear me sing them, but uh, uh, I I know the Gilbert and Sullivan repertoire really well. So again, that was a fortunate thing that early, or in, in my time, it was after I'd been working in Britain, but when I came back to Australia, uh, that I was able to work on those Gilbert and Sullivan pieces. I think I was... I didn't stage manage them, so I, I was like the assistant director. But we would do, in Sydney, we would do 14 performances, two weeks of the first one, I think, was Iolanthe, but it, we were rehearsing Pinafore during the day, and I had to watch every single performance. And I think perhaps by, by performance number 12, provided it kept on going, I wouldn't have said I was sort of boss-eyed. <laughs> and then the, the, we toured them all around the countryside and then added the following... Two years later, I think we added um, Mikado and Gondoliers to the other four. And uh, no, I, I and I was very pleased when I had was more involved with the company to bring Gilbert and Sullivan back into the repertoire, um, particularly the Gondoliers production, um, which was a production from Stratford, Ontario, uh, uh, that had been I saw on television. While it was a little bit updated, it was a bit jazzed up the, the orchestral score. Um, it it was a it's a great ensemble piece. I think 
gondoliers is pretty hard to understand if you just look at it as a text. But the one thing that it had, which all the old Gilberts had, it had charm. It had great, great charm. And uh, I think audiences respond to that. But we were fortunate also in those years because so many performances of, of Gilbert and Sullivan were done in schools. Uh, nowadays they do Les Mis and Phantom of the Opera and all these great Godspell and so forth. I don't know what they do nowadays, but they do, they do a much wider range of repertoire. So audiences are, are losing the knowledge of, of Gilbert and Sullivan? I think so. I, th- I think we, we used to say that, you know, if you were doing the Mikado at night and Pity Singh was ill, you could go out and ask the audience, <laughs> can anybody sing Pity Singh? And 12 people would say yes and half of them would be men. <laughs> Quite right, yeah. yeah. Because that, that, that had been part of your growing up. Um, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, Gilbert and Sullivan will never die, but I, I think it probably has to... Uh, I, I think the texts, are the, the Gilbert side of it, which is wonderful, but it is very dated now. And yes, there are uh, political and cultural references uh, 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 yes. of the time. Yeah. Which were obviously important to him, which, mm. which don't mean anything anymore. So off to London at Sadler's Wells, mm. what skills are you you're gathering that you can then bring back to Australia to embolden the, uh, the opera scene here? I suppose it was uh, it, it, that was just after the Sutherland Williamson season, which was logistically very complicated because we did uh, three operas in the first week and then one every Tuesday till we had seven. So uh, to work out rehearsals for, and run rehearsals and run the evening shows was quite a quite a challenging job. Uh, and it was made more complicated because there were lots of cast changes. So you would have Mr. Pavarotti as Alfredo in Traviata for the first two performances, and then Mr. Alexander would come in and do it, and then Mr. Montar. You know, it was, and these people had, some of them got precious little rehearsal. But uh, it, it was, um, that was a, 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 to have Norman Ayrton and Peter Smith, Norman working out basically the plan of how the re- things were going to be rehearsed, but he was directing five operas. And Peter was working out the entire technical schedule. Uh, and in those days, of course, stage management was very different to what it is today because you were the assistant director, you were the sort of sometimes the paymaster, you were, uh, you were doing all sorts of jobs around the place. It was wonderful. Uh, so when I went to Sadler's Wells, it was a much more uh, regulated, disciplined uh, environment. The thing that I, that was, really interesting for me was that there was so much repertoire because we did sort of five or six operas a year in Australia and in the first six months or something, the first three or four months I did 12 operas. The Hamburg State Opera came to Sadler's Wells Theatre uh, doing Frau Neuschatten and Lulu and Cosi Fantute and I was told, well you have to be backstage for a couple of those to make sure that the barbells are rung at the right time and that the calls are done in our accepted fashion in English, you know. So I got to do that, the Handel Opera Society. Suddenly I was involved with Theodora and Orlando, Janet Baker singing, you know. I mean, the, 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 that sort of repertoire and that different sort of music. What I, what I um, found harder was that it was so disciplined. We were doing a series of Offenbach operators in the summer 
the Parisian office in the underworld, and Bluebeard. And I was in the corner running uh, Orpheus, I think. Uh, no, uh, V. Parisienne. And uh, I'd been in the office in the afternoon doing something or other, and I took my score down from the stage management office to the prompt corner and put it on the desk where I would run the show at night. Next day, I had a phone call from the stage director saying, um, would you come in and see me? That was the ASM's job. Your assistant should have taken the score down. Uh, and you, uh, she's upset that you have usurped her position. I thought, this is, this is madness. Do your head in. <laughs> and, uh, um, but I think I was discovering I was an Australian. I mean, I knew I was an Australian, but mm. we were doing um, a new piece by Malcolm Williamson called The Violence of Saint-Jacques which is ostensibly about a Caribbean island. But to me, it was about Australia. So <laughs> in one of these long, long Sunday lighting rehearsals, I left the stage and went up and wrote a letter back to Stefan Hark at the opera company in Sydney and said, I mean, they had given me nice references saying I'd always be welcome back sort of thing. So I, I came back to Australia and I think I then I brought with it quite a lot of that, the good side of that very structured uh, organisation that Sadler's Wells had had. And this was a time when um, things were becoming, uh, the repertoire was broadening in Australia and uh, there was a new energy, there were new people involved, some of the old company was together. So it was, again, timing was everything and timing was very important so I think those were perhaps skills that I brought back. In your time as artistic director of uh, the Australian Opera you invested a great deal in uh, young artists, young creators. It's important to to uh, develop the next generation of the company also isn't it? While, while Dame Joan Sutherland was not and she wasn't a formal member of the company, but she was the head of the company. And in, in the years that she sang, she was the centre. She was the sort of star in the middle. And, and as she retired, or as she was leading towards retirement, uh, Donald MacDonald, who was the general manager and, and my closest colleague in the opera in those days, we realised we had to somehow make the company the star because it wasn't going to be another Joan Sutherland who was immediately going to step into her shoes and, and all would go on as it had gone on before. Uh, and I was very much of the opinion that uh, while specialist opera directors and opera people were, that was wonderful and that was what perhaps I was, but that we were part of a broader um, theatrical world and it, it, it was a little bit like you know, if you were at a school swimming carnival and you were within lanes, you know, that you, you were in your lane and you swam in that lane and you didn't go to the left and you didn't go to the right. So that there were, you were an opera person and you were a musical person, you were a drama person. And I thought there were energies that could be brought from, take the ropes of the lanes out of the pool and, and let them mix together. And that there were very interesting directors Potential. Well, somebody like Graham Murphy and somebody like Neil Armfield, 
who were directors who were not working in opera, but would obviously be interesting opera directors, and that's what proved to happen. Barry Kosky, Baz Luhrmann, Lindy Hume. Baz, uh, Lindy, well, Lindy, of course, slightly different because she started off as a dancer. So I'd, I've known Lindy since she was a dancer in in the operas, and uh, I've, uh, I think, uh, we're very close friends. We have different opinions about certain things, but we're, I have been absolutely a big supporter of her work. When she was in Perth as artistic director of the West Australian Opera, I thought she did some fantastic things um, and has done things subsequently and made it a very important career. Um, Baz Luhrmann, Jim Sharman came to me and said, uh, uh, we were, it was about the time that Voss was being done, I think, and uh, he said, oh, there's this interesting person. We, we had the, the National Opera Workshop as part of our annual activity. And uh, he said, oh, you should, um, there's this interesting person, Baz Luhrmann. I mean, he'd been in a play that Jim had directed, I think. And uh, then they were taking Strictly Ballroom in its original form to a youth theatre festival in Yugoslavia or Czechoslovakia or somewhere. And there was a Saturday afternoon and they, they did a showing of it in the, in the Sydney Theatre Company rehearsal room in the afternoon. And that was directed by Baz Luhrmann. And at night there was, I think, the final performance of Voss in the Opera Theatre. And I just thought, this is going to be wonderful. I mean, you know, Australia, we can get the Australianness now happening. So anyhow, um, Baz... Uh, when he came back, we talked and got together, and that led to Lake Lost for in the bicentennial year. After Lake Lost, we wanted to continue the Baz Luhrmann experience. Uh, he, I think, wanted to continue it. Uh, the uh, film of Strictly Ballroom came out, or was coming out. Uh, we we had planned to do revivals of Midsummer Night's Dream and Katya Kabanova, I think, six performances of each in the winter season, which took up rehearsal periods, orchestral time, and six performance slots. We needed more money, more box office, so we needed to have something that could take all of those things and add in a few extra performances. So uh, I said, Donald MacDonald said, you've got to come up with something. So I was going off to a Ronda summer school to do a masterclass or something in... Um, that day and I, I had to get a train up in Bathurst I think it was and uh, I said well I'll come back with an idea and so I was waiting for the train to come back to Sydney and I playing around with my bits of paper on the train so well why not Bohem and Baz and Bohem would be a great thing to do and I knew that um, Cheryl Barker and David Hobson had done it on a country tour with the VSO so that led to Bohem, which was uh, an extraordinary adventure for all the technical departments, for the entire building of the company, you know, to, to become involved in the, in the production. Um, because it was all made up, out of, most of it came out of stock and, and it had a very low budget. Everybody took on the sort of godparenting, parenting roles. The wardrobe ladies, came down to see the dress rehearsal, which was during the day. 
and it opened on a Saturday night, as I recall. And many of them actually came down to be in the green room. They didn't have tickets to go to the performance on the Saturday night to see the child born. And I think that company, the buoyancy of that company feeling, and Baz is an extraordinary, and Catherine, the CM, his wife's, the designer's personalities were amazing. And uh, that was um, for him and for com the company and for opera, uh, a great adventure and a great step forward. Um, Barry Kosky uh, is, I mean, nobody could be more thrilled with what's happened to Barry's career. And he he's uh, somebody, again, he started off with a National Opera Workshop um, uh, of pieces that have not <laughs> gone any further than that National Opera Workshop. Uh, and then Nabucco. Uh, I, I think it would be very, it'd be wonderful to be able to put that Nabucco, just bring it out of a box and put it on the stage today, because people were so scandalised by it at the time, and they wouldn't raise an eyelid today. I mean, it, it, it was an eyebrow. I would love to be able to bring that Nabucco back onto the stage, because I think people, because there had been a very successful and very popular traditional production of Nabucco, uh, in the repertoire for a number of years. People loved that. And they were sort of confronted by what Barry had put on the stage. But the great thing about all Barry's work then and now is that it stems from the music. Because he is a musician. Uh, his soul is about music. And, and yes, he has some extreme ideas. Some of the things that he does are a little mystifying. But then there are things that are incredibly inventive, but at the core of it always is the music. And Barry has, um, to think that it's now 10 years have come to an end at the Komische Oper, and he's now at the moment doing Kachikabana at the Salzburg Festival, and he's going to do, has most wonderful things on his schedule. I heard from him a couple of weeks ago, and uh, uh, he, he is a, it was the right thing and something that the company can be very proud of that we gave him that opportunity to go from the fringe opera work that he was doing in Melbourne with a company called Treason of Images, I think that was a wonderful name for a company. And then he did the Gilgore work on, with the plays. But to, to give him an opportunity to, to come into the operatic, the main stage opera world and uh, Nabucco, I think, was a was a diff, was a mixed success. Flying Dutchman, the Golem, and I think the Wozzeck that he did was one of the best things done in my time as artistic director. Of course, you have a, a considerable repertoire of productions that you have directed as well: uh, Rape of Lucretia, Tritico, Semiramide, La Clemenza de Tito. Domineo, uh, the list goes on. Um, a favourite of mine, which I have seen twice, is Madame Butterfly. It was um, a brilliant production executed with such grace, humanity and style. Can you tell me about the evolution of, of that production? Butterfly is an opera that's 
that I loved from the first moment I heard it. I saw it first at the Elizabethan with John Hammond as Butterfly. Uh, and it, it was always part of, I did a country tour of Butterfly, stage managed a country tour of Butterfly. When I was at Sadler's Wells, uh, there was a beautiful production of Butterfly by Colin Graham uh, that I loved. We did it in English. Uh, and uh, then my next association was back in Australia with uh, the Elizabethan Trust Opera. There was to be a new production by Sir Robert Heldman. Uh, and for whatever reason, that didn't happen. And so uh, it was suggested that it, the butterfly should be staged by a Japanese director. So there was a man called Yoshi Fujiwara who ran an opera company in Japan. Uh, and there was a government association or a sponsorship association. I don't remember the exact details. Anyhow, um, we... Uh, rolls of fabric arrived from Japan to make kimonos with instructions as to how to make kimonos and so forth. And uh, we were going to rehearse Butterfly and Mr. Fujiwara and his assistant, Mr. Kiyomiya, were coming and uh, they looked at all these rows of fabric and the kimonos that were being put together and they said, oh, it's very beautiful. When do we meet the producer? And uh, John Young, who was the head of the opera company at that time, they thought they were here just to advise on the um, uh, authenticity of the production. So I was told that I would have to actually stage the butterfly, uh, in learn their version and stage it. And um, uh, so I was working with Mr. Kiyomiya and uh, about shoes going on and off and so on and so forth. Uh, it was... a uh, mixed success. Butterfly can't fail, but it wasn't awfully good. I mean, it had Maureen Howard as Butterfly, who was really interesting and somebody, a performer that I loved very much. Uh, it, uh, Gilario was conducting. Uh, it had good things about it, but it then in, it started in Canberra, I think went to Melbourne and around the place. There was, when it came to Sydney, there was a Japanese soprano called Michiko Sunahara and she didn't really want to do all of the Japanesey things that we'd been told were so important to this production. She'd sung the role often in Europe and around the world um, uh, but she was extraordinarily sensitive and I, uh, I had to put her into the production I suppose I didn't, there wasn't a lot of rehearsal but she was a very gracious lady. All of the politeness of the Jap of Japanese custom and so forth like that was so extraordinarily beautiful just in her everyday dealing uh, that it was like paying you the greatest compliment to, to so I, I I loved the fact that this gentility uh, could work theatrically with with the opera uh, then um, uh, we did a new production, a very good production by John Copley of Butterfly in the company's repertoire, uh, which was Leona Mitchell's first first Butterfly and her first appearance with the company. We did lots and lots of performances of that with different people, John Carden, uh, all sorts of very good singers and some not so good in over the years. Uh, and 
by that stage, I wasn't really, my work was, I, I didn't have a lot of time to direct. The, the things that I uh, directed tended to be uh, revivals of things I'd done earlier, like the Tritico of Puccini, or in the sad um, circumstances when Uranieva felt died, and I took over a Mozart production of Clemenza di Tito that he was going to do. Uh, so anyhow, Donald MacDonald, we needed a new butterfly or thought we would do a new butterfly. So Donald MacDonald suggested that I should do it. And I thought it was, it was right to do it. Uh, and I had uh, heard Cheryl Barker sing Butterfly uh, in New Zealand in the Ken Russell production, which was a sort of extreme atom bomb type production but I and Cheryl was somebody I'd brought back into the company uh, and uh, she was happy to sing Butterfly so it was something that we we evolved over a period of time I was uh, a member of the board of studies at NIDA and involved a little bit with the young designers and directors out there and so I, uh, there were two young designers, Peter England and Russell Cohen, whose work on a project production of Voss I'd seen that I thought would be interesting to work with. I liked the dynamic of young designers working with an experienced old rat, I being the old rat, uh, or vice versa. You know, I think that's, that's quite a good dynamic to have. So I invited them in to, to see if they would like to be interested in doing this production. Uh, we had time. Uh, we had identified Patrick Summers, who would, for the American conductor, who would conduct it. Um, so we started off this sort of whole adventure. The two designers, we gave a studio. It was built around an air conditioning duct in the opera centre where they could do the work out the design and do their other work to give them a base. So there was a little sort of hub about Butterfly. Um, and it was, they had never seen or heard the opera, uh, had never seen a production of the opera. I'd seen many, many of them. So I think we were good for each other. They would come and say, oh, Yamador is going to arrive in a helicopter and yellow fur is going to come out the door. And... Um, uh, he'll slide down and really and uh, <laughs> and then one day I remember coming in and Russell who was doing mostly the costumes said oh well it's all going to be in corsets and the obis and uh, the Japanese sashes around the kimonos are all going to be corsets anyhow we we created this production uh, with a great deal of love and respect uh, we had a um, the tenor I was very, very interested in, in having a, a slightly different take on Pinkerton coming from the music. And we had an American tenor coming from San Francisco who was suddenly uh, offered to do something at the Paris Opera and dumped us. And Patrick Summers found J. Hunter Morris, who was the first Pinkerton, who was um, perfect. Uh, and he, he became a significant Wagnerian singer in major theatres um, and we'd, all, we'd all done our homework you know it was uh, and it's a very finely crafted piece of theatre I mean there are how many versions five seven five different 
basic versions of Butterfly. And uh, so that it was a joy, we decided to do it, that it was from the outset, we said it's an Italian opera. It's set in Japan, but to do it strictly Japanese is making it something else. So uh, particularly we were inspired by the paintings of Whistler, uh, who was an American, Russian trained, French practicing artist who painted uh, or painted a lot of, of pictures of Western women wearing Japanese clothes. Uh, so that those things evolved, we, we, we invented Japan so that some of, some of what we had was from Kabuki and from um, the Budraku, the, the wooden platform was from the No Theatre, but there were things from Indonesian theatre, there were things from India, there were all sorts of things that came. We, we made something that stemmed from the music and it was one of those very happy times with the designers, the conductor, the cast and the director all being on the same page and each one stimulating the other. Well, collaboration is paramount, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, we had, as the Baz Boheme had, we had the same sort of support from within the opera centre. You know, the ticket sellers, the wig makers, all of those people were interested in it and cared about it. And that gives you, you have a great work. And so it was... Um, it had it took a long time to evolve. It didn't need a long time necessarily, but because it had it, and um, it was a time when Doctor Theatre came, and um, but it, it, no, look, it, it deserved to because it, it had so much love attached to it, and I think some of the images that uh, the designers created uh, gave it a sort of magic. Uh, that again stemmed from the music, you know, the love duet and the starry sky and so on and so forth like that. It was, it was simple, uh, I, I, because butterfly. A lot of butterflies are basically two-handed scenes. You know, they're, they're very intimate things, and to put, uh, I, I was very much influenced having worked on two of the Yeverfeld Oberle Mozart operas, which are basically done on a bare stage. Even back to my first production, which was Rape of Lucretia, was sort of a bare stage. I quite like the idea of an empty space and or an open space in which the, you could then concentrate on the artist. So it's like going into a close-up. And it was very ca- carefully desi- uh, considered to actually have... You need to have the singers quite close to the front. And then the magic of the water that... Peter England brought into the water and stones and things like that. There was lots of beautiful things in it. And the beautiful candles floating. Oh, yes. Uh, the top. Was, but they, they, all, all of those things, all of the colours, everything, I think, came out of the music. Uh, in an earlier conversation off mic, uh, when we first met today, you were talking about um, the, the text of Butterfly also and, and um, the key to the romance between Pinkerton and Butterfly can certainly be found at the very end of the piece in that repetition of Butterfly? I think, I mean, it's easy to, to, I mean, what Pinkerton does is caddish, but I don't, I I think, I uh, grew up, my brother is three years younger than I am, and he went into the Navy, Naval College at uh, 15. So I grew up with uh, his, he and his colleagues around me. And, you know, when they left, they were, they went to Singapore or wherever they were on their first, uh, postings 
And so they were protected in a way. They were enclosed within the Naval College and the, all the rules and regulations. And then they, they burst out. And so I think that Pinkerton is somebody who, who goes to Japan and just is immediately suddenly from a grey life on a ship. And I'm not being nasty about ships, but, but a, a very regulated life comes into a place which is full of colour, he's got different scents, has, has got, uh, is, is a, just uh, appealing to all of his senses that had been c contained in a way by his upbringing and this is what you will do and this is what you will do next and so on and so forth. And I think that while both Pinkerton and Butterfly know what they are, what they're letting themselves in for, when the Bonds comes in and denounces Butterfly for having become a Christian and so forth and a family rejecter and so on and so forth. It changes the whole dynamic. And the great music of the Love Duet, you actually see them become really in love. Uh, and uh, so in the versions of Butterfly, the, the original version, of course, didn't have the tenor aria in the last act. Adio Fioro Tarzil, and that is... Um, the te text of that, I mean, his remorse is absolutely genuine. So I love to find in productions or in pieces, and especially if the piece will stand it, as much contrast as you can find. So Pinkerton has so many contrasts, but it, it struck me that at the end, the, cry, the three cries of Butterfly, they're, they're extraordinarily important, because particularly for Butterfly, because... It, it, the danger with Butterfly is that you can play the tragedy from almost the beginning and it's not a tragedy until almost the last moment mm. and uh, she's uh, <coughs> it's not losing face so much but I mean there's the, a the shame that she feels that the dishonour that she's trying to retain when she looks at the father's knife but that when she hears we change the position of when actually she kills herself so that she it's done with the, the first butterfly but she hears that and it it lets people know she wasn't a fool as a director there comes a time when you hand the production over to the performers and the stage manager a role that you're also very familiar with um, and i share a quote from your autobiography it is a strange experience to be so closely connected to a project, steering it through casting, design, manufactured rehearsal with the ultimate purpose of making oneself redundant to its actual performance. Did you ever reconcile yourself with that key part of the production process on, on any of the productions that you directed? It, it's, it's a bit like handing over your child, isn't it? It is, and not everybody would agree with that. I mean, there are, there are very great directors who... I mean, I never let it go. I mean, I would always come and see it and, and I would occasionally give a note or make a comment. But I, th I think that it is ownership of a, of a... The ownership of the performance has to be complete and, and they're not puppets. Uh, and um, I, did I ever reconcile myself with it? I found it a little harder later on. Uh, when I was no longer actually doing the casting and so forth. I would sometimes be consulted, sometimes not. Um, uh, and 
sometimes one would feel that's a strange choice or whatever. But I again, you go back to the piece, and if you have a good working process, most times that can work out, and sometimes you can be absolutely surprised that the person that you thought was strangely cast actually turns out to be really well cast. I got quite proprietorial, I think, with some a piece like Sir Gianni Skiki in the Tritico because I did it for 25, 27 years or something like that. And, and I, uh, I I worked on it first with Mark Elder. As I, <laughs> the first time we did the Tritico, we had three conductors. With, with Tabara was uh, Sir Edward Downs and Mark Elder was Johnny Skiki and Bill Reid was Swar Angelica. And uh, the whole preparation with Mark was so intense so, and we kept together a, a sort of core group of people as the, the relatives group. So uh, that, no, I, I think if you've got the time to uh, rebuild it, then you can do it. But I, I, I do believe very much that if, if you can leave, I remember with the butterfly dress rehearsal, I think it was in a morning, on a morning, and Peter and Russell and I, Peter drove us back to the Opera Centre when they were dismantling their studio where they were for nearly two years been, been working on this piece. And we said, well, it's, we've got nothing to do with it anymore. And, uh, and, but we were content with what we had done and we were happy to hand it over. Building new repertoire, creating Australian repertoire was also very important to you in your time at the company. I'm thinking of a show an opera like The Eighth Wonder. <laughs> the Eighth Wonder is interesting because I, I mean, I knew that I, I was not going to go beyond a certain time. And uh, I, I was very keen to bring the violins of Saint-Jacques into the repertoire of Malcolm Williamson. And uh, I, partly because of my personal association with it, uh, at its premiere in London and it was done on ABC television but I thought Malcolm Williamson is an Australian and we should do an a piece by Malcolm Williamson. So it was planned, at its, you know, on forward planning file. And uh, we then did an, uh, the idea of uh, Jim Sharman I think started it off about the, the germ of the Eighth Wonder. So we gave the National Opera Workshop to that project and Alan John wrote some of the music, Dennis Watkins, they worked on it. The whole piece wasn't complete, but we did about 40, 50 minutes of it in a National Opera workshop. And Jim did it in his particular way that he managed to persuade a designer to come in and a choreographer, and it became it was a wonderful way of actually workshopping it and giving it a chance. And uh, once I saw that, I thought, well, that's goodbye to the violins of Saint-Jacques. We have to take this further. And, uh, um, it, it, and it progressed then very well. I mean, with uh, Richard Gill, especially. Um, it, it was in, incredibly moving because having been part of the first season in the Opera House and all the lead into the Opera House, um, the, the, and the Danish Association, because John Winter was our first general manager, I was his personal assistant for a number of years. Uh, there were so many resonances for me in that piece that I, 
I, I suppose I could be objective. Well, I didn't have to be objective about it at that stage. It was being done. And I, I think the important thing about Australian pieces is that they have a second um, showing, and uh, I'm glad that it's had that. I, I hope that it will last as a piece. It's very exciting to see that piece in the building that it is about. Oh, yes. It, it, it adds another dimension to the experience. Yes, it 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 is, and and the the characters are sort of conglomerates of people that one knew and worked with. I mean, the the parliamentarians and and the singing teacher and so forth like that. Whether that's Madame Marty or not, who was a very powerful force in Sydney Opera when I joined the company. Um, no, I I think that the the Eighth Wonder uh, is was the culmination of, of a dream, I think, or a dream of a, of a scheme that Stuart Challender and I had that we thought, because the company hadn't, for all sorts of very good reasons, done Australian music or only in, in a somewhat tokenistic way up until a certain point. When we started, when I became artistic director, uh, we started the National Opera Workshop we were going to do Voss, which we did, and then we did the second meal piece and so forth. We did the Golem, which was a long ago commission piece which had not been performed. Uh, and uh, that was uh, important also for Barry Kosky's uh, ongoing association with the company. Stuart Challender and I had um, wanted to make a an association with Australian composers so that it would that would be of benefit to individual composers and to the company that while you expected we were expected as a company to be doing Verdi and Puccini and Mozart and so forth we should be doing music of our own time and place that should be an expectation you can't just put that down a piece of paper and say to the audience or the subscribers this is what's going to happen now you have to do it and you can't do it within the company either because there were things like the Seymour Group, which did very admirable work on Sunday nights at the Seymour Centre. But, you know, the company needed to have an association with um, with composers. And so we started off doing these workshops. Uh, we did Voss on the stage. Uh, it grew and grew. Uh, the, the National Opera Workshops, the, the first Baz Luhrmann Association, Lake Lost was a a little production was different to the other National Opera Workshops, but it was all part of that National Opera Workshop activity. But I think that when, on the opening night of, of The Eighth Wonder, I suddenly thought, well, that's the culmination of the Stuart Moffat dream plan that we've actually got to this piece. This is something that we can really own. And um, so uh, I think that that's... It's a slow progress. I mean, it, it, the awful thing about, well, not awful thing, the difficult thing about it, it, staging these pieces is that, you know, it's so labour intensive. I mean, there are so many people involved that, that you have an orchestra, you have, sometimes you have a chorus, but if you, you have soloists, you have a whole rehearsal, but it's, it's very labour intensive and, of course, very expensive. And you can't necessarily expect that it's going to be producing the sort of box office income that you need to have from every performance that you put on. So uh, it's a question, as is most 
a question of balance. That's what's most important, I think, in everything that one does, just to find a balance. Um, but I, I hope that the Eighth Wonder will survive as a piece and as the fact that it will always be relevant because of the building. A lifetime working in theatres. Did you develop any superstitions? Not really. I, I used to always uh, knock the stage three times on my productions on the opening night, but that's about the only one I think. No, I, I'm, I, different people have, uh, I mean, some suspicions. Are, are like, I'll tell you a funny story about suspicions. We, had, we were doing, uh, in I think 1968, we were doing Tosca and Funchalito West, I think, in, the, in Her Majesty's Theatre in Sydney. The, um, Tosca was Antonietta Stella, a wonderful uh, Italian soprano, guest soprano, famous soprano. Uh, and uh, in the, the uh, other soprano was Marcello Reale, an American of Italian descent. Uh, there's a suspicion about the colour purple. And Marcella Reale was very aware, she's, she lived in Italy, but that she wouldn't have the colour purple anywhere near her. And the sofa in the principal soprano's dressing room was purple. Antonietta Stella didn't particularly worry about the colour purple, but she was a sort of slightly melancholic, beautiful lady. And uh, so what we had to do was, and they shared the same dressing room, so we had to make sure that the purple sofa was taken out for Reale's performances and the purple sofa went in for Stella's performances. Martella Reale had a little dog that she'd bought, a little Australian terrier, uh, and somebody, the tenor in her opera, one of her operas, Tanhoise, I think it was, uh, had uh, bought some toys for this little dog to play with because she would have it in the dressing room with her, one of which was a very realistic snake. So... In the process, the snake must have been left behind. So in the process of moving the sofa back in, somehow or other, the snake was on the floor. We were about to start the second act of Tosca. I went round to Stella's dressing, I'm stage managing. She used to sit in front of her big jewel box and put oh, diamonds, rubies, I don't know, you know, the thing. So, uh, I, I went in to, to say, was she happy to start the act? Yes, that was fine. So we started the act, which Tosca sings with the uh, chorus off stage at the beginning of the second act. Suddenly the dresser came rushing through. To, Stella has fainted. <laughs> and because she'd seen this snake and thought it was real. And she hadn't actually fainted, but she'd had a little turn. So we... There was a lady in the chorus I thought knew that could sing the offstage perhaps, but in so somehow Stella staggered through the doors. They had swing doors on there uh, to get onto the stage in Her Majesty's in Sydney. Doctor Theatre. Doctor Theatre. So she came and did it. Yes. You retired from the company in 1999, the end of a century. How did you know it was time to to finish up? Uh, when, when I was asked to become the artistic director, I mean, I was already doing much of the work because I worked very closely with Richard Bonning and he was... Uh, so I, I was doing a lot of the work of artistic direction with him, in consultation with him. And, and then the chairman of the company and 
the general manager, Patrick Veach, at that time asked me to go to dinner and said, we, you know, Richard's contract is coming to an end. We think it's right that you should be there. So I, was, I didn't apply for it or anything like that. I was very flattered. And I remember Charles Berg said to me, you will expect to have this job for 10 years. And I thought, yes, that's fine. Uh, but then I realized that the things, you can't turn the thing around and I wasn't out to knock it all down. I wanted it to continue and to develop, but that it, you, you didn't immediately start changing everything because even though I was much involved in what had gone before. So it became, uh, my contract was renewed at different times. I, I can't remember what segments it was in, but it, I was sort of decided with Donald that I would leave uh, at the end of, 1998 I think I would leave at the end of 1998 and then the Olympics came and so it was decided that I would be involved in planning the Olympics that was uh, the Olympics arts as as the, the arts yeah. festival that in itself was quite difficult because the theatre became an Olympic arts site and we had to bid to appear in the theatre um, and uh the, the Australian Ballet wanted to be involved in it and so on and so forth. And we, of course, needed to have that box office from that time because it was a, a peak part of our season. So, so it, the, the Olympic Arts Festival was complicated because of the access to the theatre and so forth. Uh, and I was um, involved to an extent in, in the appointment of Simone Young uh, because I thought that was absolutely the right. I mean, I was very supportive of that appointment. And, uh, uh, and in, indeed planned that uh, we would work together on the production of Simone Bocanegra. It seemed to me a nice resonance that the one going out and the one coming in would work together, which was worked well. Uh, um, but as, as things developed um, because of the need to have uh, the repertoire that I had wanted to perform leading up to the Olympics included things like The Eighth Wonder and The Midsummer Night's Dream of Baz Luhrmann and uh, I respect very much Adrian Collette at the time he felt that, the chart, that without a more popular repertoire we had there was a very real chance that we would lose the bid to be in the theatre. So I had to plan revivals of Tosca with, I mean, Charles McCarris was coming to come and do Macropolis Case and things like that. I mean, there were all sorts of things that I thought were really exciting, and then it had to be they had to become more predictable. I, I'm not saying that Tosca and Traviata are not great operas, but I just thought we could be more make more of a statement about what we were as a company. Um, but also it was becoming clear that my, I mean, you, as you would expect with an artistic director whose background was as a director, uh, was an, an opera administrator and a musical director, things are going to be different anyhow, the way it's going to be staffed. Simone had a career in other parts of the world. It was, it just wasn't sort of working out. So that's why I decided to go a year early. I did in fact stay for the whole of, 2000 or but I took lots of long service leave uh, but I, I looked after the pieces that I'd put in place 
and I did the Bocanegra production and I think revived various other things. So, yeah, no, I think that it needs... I, I don't think you can say 10 years, 12 years, 15 years, but I think that a company needs a reinvigoration. Uh, and I think... I, d I don't think that I felt that I wasn't fresh or, or working, but I mean, you, it, it, I, that seemed to me about the right length of time. I don't think... I respected people like Mr. Adler in San Francisco, who'd been there for a long, long, long time. Um, but no, I think it was the right time to go. Well, Moffat Oxenbold, thank you so much for your contribution to the development of opera in Australia. Um, and thank you for your, your story today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. It's, a, it's been a, an extraordinary uh, adventure and a very very fortunate life I mean I could not have ever dreamed in my wildest imaginings as a schoolboy that I would be able to have such a, a fulfilling and exciting and stimulating career in, a, in, a, in something that I loved I mean it's, it's a, an extraordinary blessing a fascinating insight into the development of opera in Australia through the eyes of someone who had that world set firmly in his sights from boyhood. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I enjoyed recording it. My thanks to Stage's guest in this episode, Moffat Oxenbold. Thanks for joining us. You can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. Please tell all of your friends about the podcast, easily accessed through Spotify or Apple Podcasts. More listeners mean more fun for everyone. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time on Stages. <laughs>